Amen. Please turn to 1 Thessalonians. We're in chapter 4, first eight verses of chapter 4. And while you're turning there, I want, I want us to think back to long ago, probably farther back than any of us can remember, but I want you to try to think back to when you learned how to walk. <laughs> you were probably about a year old. But right about that time when you hit about one, you decide it's better to walk where you want to go instead of crawl, right? For you and me, for most of us, after we mastered the skill of putting one foot in front of another, we didn't really need any further instruction unless later in life we had an injury or an illness that required physical therapy or something that affected our walking. But isn't it interesting as Christians, we need constant, constant instruction on how to walk with God. And in scripture, when we see the word walk, it refers to our daily conduct. Our walk with the Lord refers to how you and I go step by step through life in a way that pleases God. Let's see what our walk should look like, okay? Let's read together. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This passage comes from a letter written by Paul to the church in Thessalonica, that's Greece. Paul is writing to people he loves very much, like a a father would write to his children. Do you hear that in Paul's words? Like a loving father would write to his children. This passage we just read together reminds me of another letter I read just a few weeks ago. This other letter was written by a young Marine during World War II. And I'd like to read you just a few excerpts of this letter from this young Marine and see if it doesn't remind you of what Paul is, how Paul is writing to the church. The letter from the Marine is addressed to my dear little boys. The Marine writes, I'm writing to you today just a week before Christmas Eve in the hope that you will get this little note at Christmas time. I won't be able to give you a Christmas present personally this year, but I do want you to know that I think of you all the time and feel very proud of the way you have been helping your mother while I'm gone. You hear hear him praising them like Paul praised the Thessalonians? Now he's going to encourage his children to excel still more. Listen to this. He says, I know that it's only natural for young, healthy, and strong boys like you are to want to play and have fun all the time. But I do want you to think about helping mommy. I know that you would like to give me a Christmas present too, so I will tell you what you can do. 
and this will be your Christmas present to me. Every day, ask mommy if there are any errands you can go on for her. And when there are errands to run, say, sure, mommy, and give her a big smile. Then during the day, go up to your room and look around. If there are toys scattered all around, or you left some of your clothes on the floor, pick them up. Also, when mommy is busy trying to clean up the house, don't leave her by herself. But ask mommy if you can help her take care of baby sister. If you do these things for me, Marian writes, that will be the finest Christmas present you could give me. This young Marine was killed in combat two months after he sent this letter home to his dear little boys. The letter we're reading from Paul tells us how you and I can give the, the Lord the greatest gift we can possibly give him. What is that gift? It's just like what the Marine asked of his dear little boys. The greatest gift, our finest gift that we can give to God is our loving and cheerful obedience. Our loving and cheerful obedience. So let's explore this passage from Paul one section at a time. Let's do verses 1 to 2. Paul writes, Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Paul uses the word finally, which in the Greek means as for the rest. It serves as a transition. Paul is telling us he's getting ready to wrap up the letter, but before he does, he's going to tell us some very important things we need to know. Paul writes, finally then, Brethren, he's addressing the brethren. This means he's writing to the entire church, not just to an individual. So these instructions, these commands we're reading this morning are for the entire church. Just as Pastor Mark and Michael have shown us earlier in the letter, your walk, your obedience to the Lord impacts me. And my walk, my obedience to the Lord impacts you. We are the body of Christ. We need to work together, and we need to help each other learn how to walk in a way that pleases the Lord. Paul writes, we request and exhort you. This means we ask you and we command you in the Lord Jesus. Paul is not issuing his own orders. These orders are not coming from Paul. They come with the authority of the Lord Jesus himself. This reminds me of the time a few years ago where I had the privilege of going down to the Camp Pendleton Marine Base near Oceanside. I was there to do some videotaping for a project, and I was escorted around the base by the commanding officer of the base. He was a full colonel. And during our tour, we wandered into a place where I had my camera set up, and all of a sudden, a sergeant came out of nowhere. He was a mountain of a man. And he had the letters MP on his arm, and he had lots of firepower on his body. And he came up to the colonel, snapped off the crispest salute I've ever seen, and informed his commanding officer that we were in an area that didn't allow videotaping. The colonel immediately returned the salute, turned to me and told me to pack up my gear, which I did right away. Why would a colonel take orders from a sergeant? Well, he wasn't. 
The sergeant was just the messenger. The sergeant's message about no cameras came from the highest level of authority in the Marine Corps. So the full colonel, colonel was just following the orders of his superior officers. In our passage, Paul is just like that sergeant. He is the messenger giving us orders from the highest level of authority in the church, the highest level of authority in the world from the Lord Jesus himself. So Paul writes, we request and exhort you, command you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk to please God, just as you actually do walk. Let me stop there and say, Paul was only with the Thessalonian Christians for about three weeks before he went on to do other missionary work. So Paul is reminding his readers about the instructions he gave them during those three weeks. That was probably a very intense three weeks. And that instruction was regarding their walk, regarding how they could have their daily conduct be sure to please their God. And these new Christians were not only receiving instruction. You know what the word receiving here means? It means welcoming. They weren't just hearing it like, yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like, wow, more, more. They were welcoming it. Not only were they welcoming the instruction, they were actually doing what God told them to do. So obviously there's a question for you and I this morning. First, are you and I welcoming? Do we look forward to getting God's instruction? And then, do we actually do what God tells us to do? Or asking this another way, is there a gap between what God tells us to do and what we actually do? Is there a gap in your life and in my life, between what God tells us to do and what we actually do. <clears throat> Let me ask you this. <laughs> do you ever catch yourself do you ever catch yourself saying something like this? Um, I know God doesn't want me to do this, but then you do it. <laughs> or I know God wouldn't want me to say this, but then you say it. Or I know I know God wouldn't want me to have these kind of thoughts, but then you go on and let those thoughts occupy your mind. Whenever you and I receive an instruction from the Lord and we answer by saying yes, but, that word but means we have a gap. The gap means we know, (laughs) we're not confused, we know what God is telling us to do, but we're not going to do it. For whatever reason we want to give him, we're not going to do it. But the primary reason is we just want to do something else. We need to look at something that Jesus said. This will be familiar to you. It's from Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Jesus said this. Jesus came up to them and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Jesus is God. Jesus has all authority over everything. In heaven and earth, that includes you and me. Jesus has authority over us. He is God. He says in verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Verse 19 has a key word we need to see. Jesus said, Go therefore and make what? Make what? Yeah, disciples. He didn't say go out and make converts. Go out and make Christians. Go out and make churchgoers. He said he calls us to be and to make disciples. A disciple isn't just a word 
or a title. A disciple is a job description. You and I, as disciples of Christ, have a job description. What does disciple mean? Here's what disciple means. A disciple is an apprentice. Someone who invests his or her life to learn and train under the authority of a master for the purpose of carrying on the master's work. You and I are called to be an apprentice, a disciple of our master, the Lord Jesus. You and I are called to devote our life to be in training to learn how to please God the Father just like Jesus the Son always does. So, as disciples, your job and my job every day, even on our bad days, is to continue to learn how to do all that he commanded us to do. This means your job and my job every day, even on our bad days, is to learn how to close those gaps, close those gaps we have in our obedience to the Lord. This is a lifelong process for you and me. And and at the end of what we just read, Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always. This word lo doesn't mean we dare not fly in an airplane because Jesus is only with us when we're low. It's not spelled that way. L-O. It means, look, don't miss this. Pay special attention. Jesus is telling us to pay special attention to the fact that he is with us always, no matter what. Jesus is with every one of his disciples. He's with you. He's with me as we work to close our gaps because Jesus knows we need his help. Just as we sang, we need him. Jesus, we need Jesus to help us close our gaps or we're not going to do it because our wise and patient and loving Savior knows that you and I are much more prone to disobey him than we are to obey him. And at the end of verse 1, Paul praises the Thessalonians for their walk and then he encourages them to excel. Excel still more. The word excel means to be exceptionally good. Be exceptionally good. If you excel in the kitchen, it means you're an excellent chef. If you excel in sports, it means you're an outstanding athlete. You and I are called to excel, to be outstanding in our obedience to the Lord. We are called to be obedient disciples who are devoted to improving to closing those gaps in our obedience to Jesus every day of our lives. So in our passage today, and in every passage of God's word, we find the true purpose of life. What is the purpose of life? Do you know? The Bible tells us the purpose of life is to please God. Purpose of life is to please God. Contrary to what society says, and contrary to what we think sometimes, Life isn't about us. And life isn't about ice cream. Life isn't about other fun things. Life is about the Lord. One time a man asked Jesus what the most important thing in all the world was. Do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 12, 20? Jesus answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. We're called to love the Lord with all our heart. This means our greatest desire, your greatest desire, my greatest desire in life should be to please the Lord. 
Is that your and my greatest desire in life? If our greatest desire isn't to please the Lord, then what is our greatest desire? We should answer that for ourselves. We are called to love the Lord with all our soul. This means the greatest satisfaction in life comes from seeking and wanting God's will over our own will. Are we seeking God's will in every area of our lives? If we're not seeking God's will, what are we seeking instead? We're called to love the Lord with all our mind. This means our greatest purpose in life is to have God's thoughts become our thoughts. Is our greatest purpose in life to think like Jesus? If we don't want God's thoughts to be our thoughts, then what other thoughts do we want in our heads? And finally, we're called to love God with all of our strength. This means our greatest drive, our greatest focus, our greatest drive in life is to give God our best effort, our best effort to obey him in every area of our lives. If we're not giving God our best effort, who or what is giving our best effort? When you and I understand that life is about the Lord and not about ourselves, and following, following God's commands make perfect sense. When we finally understand that life is all about the Lord and not about ourselves, then following his commands makes perfect sense. When we understand that God actually, truly, and really knows what is best for us, then following his commands is the best thing, the most brilliant thing you and I can do in every situation we face. I want to share two quotes with you, and they're going to come up back to back. So if, if you want to get them down, you might want to get your cameras ready or just listen to this later and write it down then. But the first quote is from Dallas Willard. And he says this. He says, the most important thing in your life is not what you do. It's who you become. That's what you will take into eternity. It's who you become in Christ is the most important part of life. That's what you will take with you into eternity. And the second quote is from A.W. Tozer, and Pastor Mark, you sent me this. I have this quote on my computer, and I look at it at least once a week. At least once a week, sometimes every day. A.W. Tozer says, when I understand that everything happening to me is to make me more Christ-like, it resolves a great deal of anxiety. This probably never happens to you. But sometimes life gets stressful and confusing. I'm sure that never happens to you. Sometimes stuff happens that you just don't need. I'm sure that never happens to you. Sometimes temptations come your way that you really have trouble resisting. I'm sure that doesn't happen to you. But if it ever does, you can realize everything is coming to make you more Christ-like. And then you can face those things with a lot less anxiety. So, Big question. Do you know what God's will is for your life? Do you know what God's will is for your life? Let's read together verses 3 to 6 where we find out. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Verse 3 opens with a big, bold headline. This is the will of God. Here is God's will for you. Here is God's plan for you. Here is God's purpose for you. 
your sanctification. Okay? What does sanctification mean? Sanctification means to be set apart to accomplish the purpose for which we were created. God's will is for you to be set apart to accomplish the purpose that he created you to accomplish. It's God's will that we separate ourselves for him and live in obedience to God instead of obedience to our own sinful desires. It's God's will that you and I become more and more like Jesus and less and less like the world. Sanctification is a process. It's a day-by-day, minute-by-minute, second-by-second process. It's a lifelong process where we learn how to obey Jesus and how to excel still more. It's a lifelong process of closing those gaps. You close one gap in your obedience, and God shows you you got another one. And then you work on closing that one. It's a lifelong process of closing the gap between what God tells us to do and what we actually do. So we see here a fact of life for the disciple of Christ. If you're a disciple of Christ, we have a fact of life. We simply cannot be what God created us to be if we live impure lives. You and I cannot be, cannot be what God created us to be if we live impure lives. Sexual purity is God's will for you and for me. This command is repeated throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, because God knows how much we struggle in this area. When Paul wrote this letter, he was writing to the first century Roman culture. Yikes! If you know anything about the first century Roman culture, it was famous for its depravity and moral corruption. The Roman culture was pretty much an anything-goes society. Kind of sounds like America today, doesn't it? But regardless, regardless of the moral standards we find ourselves living in, it's God's will, it's God's purpose that we abstain from sexual immorality. The Greek word that Paul uses for sexual immorality refers to any sexual relationship outside of marriage. So again, despite what the society says it is, the the word of God says abstain from sexual morality, meaning any sexual relationship outside of marriage. It's God's will that we enjoy a physical relationship in marriage, but not outside of marriage. It's God's will. It's God's plan. It's God's purpose for you and for me. Verse 3, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, Paul saying, that is, let me be perfectly clear so you're not missing this, that you abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain means to avoid, do without, just flat out refuse to get involved. It's God's will for you and I that we refuse to get involved in any kind, any kind of sexual sin. Do you, remember, do you remember the story of Joseph in the Old Testament? It's one of my favorite passages in the Old Testament. Joseph was sold into slavery, and he was bought by a high-ranking Egyptian official named Potiphar. Potiphar was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. And God blessed Joseph so that everything Joseph did prospered. So Potiphar made Joseph the overseer of his entire household. So Joseph was put in charge of everything that Potiphar had, which was a lot. And the Bible tells us that Joseph was a very handsome young man. And Potiphar had a wife that tried to seduce Joseph. 
And Joseph's response to her advances is exactly what our response needs to be to any kind of sexual temptation. Joseph said in Genesis 39.9, it'll be on the screen, Joseph said to, Pot- to Potiphar's wife, there is no one greater in this house than I, and he, Potiphar, has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against who? Sin against Potiphar? Sin against religion? Sin against God. Joseph was a bachelor and a healthy male. We can imagine a man like Potiphar had a very attractive wife. But Joseph, God bless Joseph, he wanted to please the Lord more than he wanted to please himself. So he refused to sin against God. Joseph abstained, had nothing to do with sexual immorality. We all know there's pleasure in sin. If sin wasn't enjoyable, we wouldn't be tempted. We wouldn't be tempted if it wasn't enjoyable. So here's the question we have to ask ask and answer for ourselves. How long does the pleasure of sin last? How long does the pleasure of sin last? For any of us who've ever engaged in sin, which is all of us, we know the pleasures of sin are really brief and very expensive. Pleasure is brief, but sin comes at a great price. But I want you to see this, because this is amazing. Psalm 1611. Look at this. David writes, You will make known to me the path of life. Lord, you're going to show me how to walk with you. And in your presence, Lord, is fullness of joy. And in your right hand are pleasures forever. When we walk with God, when we choose to seek his ways over our ways, our joy is full. And our pleasure of our obedience lasts forever. This reinforces a fact of life for the disciple of Christ. And the fact of life for us is the best thing we can do in every situation is obey God. Never need to question that. The best thing we can do when we're angry is obey God. The best thing we can do when we're scared is obey God. The best thing we can do when we're happy is obey God. The best thing we can do with our bodies is obey God. Let's look at verse 3 and 4 again where he says it very clearly. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. There are two possible interpretations for the word that Paul uses for vessel. It can mean your body or it can mean your wife. Since Paul is writing this letter to the entire church, it seems likely he means your body. In our world today, and maybe you've even said this once or twice, people say, what I do with my body is my own business. I'm an adult. What I choose to do is my own business. But the Word of God says this is not true for the disciple of Christ. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. God the Father created our bodies. God the Son redeemed our bodies. 
and God the Holy Spirit lives in our bodies. We have been bought with a price. God spared no expense for you and me. He paid the highest price he could possibly pay, the blood of Jesus. And when we give ourselves back to Jesus, we give him our body and our soul. In verse 5, Paul writes, we are not to live in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. Paul uses the word Gentile here in the general sense to refer to anyone who does not know or follow God. These are non-disciples. These are non-believers. Now, the Gentiles in Paul's day worshipped idols that represented their own ambitions and lusts. In fact, the Thessalonians that he's writing to, before they came to worship Christ, they probably worshipped the Greek god Dionysus. Dionysus was the Greek god of wine and unbridled passion, a god you worship by casting off all restraints. As disciples of Christ, you and I are not called to cast off all restraints. We are called to give our heart, soul, mind, and strength to the Lord Jesus. In verse 6, he says, Let no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. Verse 6 is talking about adultery. To transgress and defraud means to deceive or take advantage of someone and take advantage in the form of adultery or really any sin for that matter. Do you remember what Jesus said about adultery? In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 27 to 28, Jesus our Lord, with all authority over heaven and earth, said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, Everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The word of God is clear regarding our behavior and our thoughts. Turn back real quick to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 12. Pastor Mark covered this just a couple of weeks ago. So we won't spend a lot of time there. We just need to look at that again. 1 Thessalonians 3, 12. It says, may, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love, in love for one another and for all people, just as we ought to do for you. Brothers and sisters, we are called to love each other. We're called to love people, not use them. We are called to love people, not use them. Verse 6 tells us very clearly that it is God's wrath. It's God who ultimately punishes any of us who do not take his warning seriously. If the Lord is convicting your heart today that you are engaged in some form of sexual sin that he is prohibiting, you have a choice. You can face the wrath of God if you like that option, or you can claim the promise of 1 John 1, 9 that says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My dear brothers and sisters, please, let's not ever try to rationalize or hide our sins. Let's have nothing to do with excuses and cover-ups. Let's just not do it. Let's confess our sins to the Lord and close those gaps that he shows us that we have between what he tells us to do and what we actually do. Verse 7 and 8. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this 
is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Okay, Paul, Paul understands his audience. We have short attention spans, don't we? So he's, just in case we missed it, he's writing, again, our purpose in life is to be set apart. He's reminding us, he just told us a few verses ago, but in case we forgot that, and we probably did, he's telling us one more time, our purpose in life, we're being called for sanctification, not impurity. So sexual immorality is simply inconsistent with who we are in Christ. It just is. It's inconsistent with who we are in Christ. Now, you've probably heard people say, and you might have even thought this at one time in your life, yeah, the Bible's an outdated book. The Bible's an outdated book. Why should I care what it says? It's an old book. Paul tells us why we should care. He writes, whoever rejects this is not rejecting man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. When we reject the truth about our sexual purity, we're not rejecting Paul. We're not rejecting a book. We're not rejecting the church. We're not rejecting right-wing, left-wing morality, anything. We are rejecting God. It's that clear. Rejecting God. One commentary phrase verse 8 this way. I want to show it to you because I could never have said it this well. Whoever will not receive these teachings and is led either to undervalue or despise them, despises not us, but God, from whom we have received our commission and by whose spirit we give these directions. We are wrong. We are wrong if we think just because the world keeps lowering its moral standards that God is lowering his. Let me say that one more time. I need, I need to hear it again. We're wrong if we think God has lowered his moral standards just because the world keeps lowering and lowering and lowering and redefining and rewriting is. God is not changing. God is unchanging. God has given us his Holy Spirit so we can understand his commands and God has given us his Holy Spirit so we can actually obey and follow his commands. Bill, why don't you bring the worship team back up and we'll just close with this thought. I hope you and I see that we have a homework assignment from this passage. And our homework assignment isn't just for today, it's for every day for the rest of our lives. Our homework assignment is to look for the gaps that we have in our obedience to God. And I I would imagine we don't have to look very hard. We probably know where most of them are. And our job every day for the rest of our lives is to do our very best to close the gaps and to pray for the Lord to be with us as we try to close the gaps in our obedience to him. This is how we can walk in a manner that pleases the Lord. This is how you and I can excel still more. Our prayer team will be over here to pray with you at the end of the service. Let me pray. Father, we know how much we need you. Lord, we know how easy it is for us to wander. And in our hearts, Father, Without your Holy Spirit, we most often choose to disobey rather than obey. So Lord, please give us one pure and holy passion. Give us one magnificent obsession. Give us one glorious ambition for our lives to know and follow diligently after you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.